The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Dialing in the Dose, reviewing recent evidence and team-based strategies to personalize and optimize patient care in metastatic colorectal cancer. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash GVA 860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Hello, and welcome to Dialing in the Dose, uh, Evidence and Team-Based Strategies to Personalize and Optimize Patient Care in Metastatic Colorectal Cancer. I am Dr. Tanya Spikaisab from the Mayo Clinic, and I practice on our campus in Phoenix, Arizona. Today, we are going to explore the management of metastatic colorectal cancer during later lines of therapy, and we will focus on how several practical approaches including the use of evidence-based dose modifications, can improve the delivery, safety, and efficacy of novel therapeutics. During this discussion, I'll use cases uh, to illustrate and give you a sense of how professionals can work together, healthcare professionals can work together to plan appropriate treatment, dosing, and ensuring the safety uh, through, through appropriate management for patients with colorectal cancer during later lines of therapy frankly, across all lines of therapy, but even more specifically in later lines. Periodically, I will share several resources that summarize important take-home messages uh, from the evidence I'll present today, so please take a moment to download these practical tools before we get started. Let's begin. So why are we here? You know, we, we know that in, in colon cancer, advanced metastatic colorectal cancer, we continue to have multiple unmet needs. So following first-line treatment, only uh, three out of four patients with colon cancer will receive second-line therapy. And then 63% will receive third-line, and only 46% uh, receive fourth-line treatment. And we know we have a number of treatments for most of these patients. And a lot of us uh, have gone into the habit of recycling chemotherapy and occasionally biologics in second and subsequent line uh, settings, uh, and, and does appear to occur more frequently than switching to a drug regimen with an alternative mechanism of action. Um, so I think this is the important piece that we want to try to emphasize is that we do have more options for our patients, uh, and, and that recycling is certainly uh, uh, something that may be worthy. However, it's important to emphasize the key aspects of uh, all the agents that have activity first to be utilized before recycling uh, agents. And certainly there are a number of clinical trials that are adaptable to, to our patients. So how do we manage adverse events in later lines of therapy is also important. The expectation is I mean, frankly, at any line of therapy, but even more so when those patients, uh, you know, have gone to later lines of therapy, is how to focus on patient preference, uh, important uh, tolerability issues continue to be quite important, become even more so, and quality of life that is important all through the treatment uh, uh, continuum. So I'm gonna, we're going to focus on third-line treatment, and I'd say, you know, for some patients it may end up being second-line. Uh, but, but refractory and focused on third-line, mostly, treatment of advanced metastatic colorectal cancer. And what does the evidence suggest or say? So when we look at the NCCN guidelines, 
uh, and talking about first-line therapy, so there is intensive therapy and, and less intensive therapy. And depending whether the patient can, can go through it or not, so performance status, uh, age, and multiple other factors that may determine, um, you know, who is uh, a candidate for what therapy. Uh, uh, so Fox, Fulfiri, or Fulfirinox, uh, also known as Fulfoxiri. Uh, are certainly regimens that would be more intensive. We're using more and more Fulfoxiri or Fulfirinox plus Bevacizumab in those patients who have adverse features like KRAS wild type, BRAF wild type, uh, I'm sorry, KRAS mutation, BRAF mutations, um, are younger. Uh, we're using the TRIPE2 uh, uh, regimen with uh, essentially putting patients on some element uh, of, uh, of maintenance. In fact, you know, maintenance should be part of our standard for all uh, patients who go through intensive therapy after three to four months of exposure to Folfox, Fulfiri, or Fulfirinox. Uh, and for those who are less uh, likely to go through intense therapy, uh, older patients, older than 75 or 80, uh, you know, for those patients, perhaps single-agent capecitabine and bevacizumab would be, would be preferred. Uh, and then how to integrate the EGFR inhibitors and all this right side versus left side, the presence of mutations such as RAS mutation, BRAF mutations, HER2 amplifications that would exclude patients uh, from receiving EGFR inhibitors are all important. And second line, it all depends on what you get in the first line and also depends on what your uh, genomics look like. So if, if oxaliplatin was in first line, then antican would be in the second line. Uh, bevacizumab beyond progression, you know, less uh, uh, and I personally don't use in my practice any Zivelt, Flibercept, or Remisurimab. I just don't think they have any additional value, um, uh, you know, post-bevacizumab. Uh, and then if, if the patient has a BRAF mutation in their tumor, then either uh, Encorafenib, Encetuximab, or Penetumimab. MSI high, we actually, uh, in first line, we proceed with Pembrolizumab as the preferred agent, uh, but also possibly Nivolumab. Uh, plus minus ipilimumab, uh, although again less preferred. Uh, Dostarlimab, which was recently approved, also less preferred. So primarily pembrolizumab in that patient population. And then HER2 target therapies uh, uh, would be. Now it's interesting that for patients who actually receive fulfirinox or fulfoxiri, uh, you know, the discussion is a little bit different, especially those with RAS mutated uh, uh, BRAF wild type uh, tumors. Uh, and HER2 non-amplified uh, and, and microsatellite stable. For those, third line becomes second line. So rigorafenib and trifluoridine, tipiracil, or TAS-102 become actually second line options for those patients. We'll talk a little bit about this in the case. So there are many drivers to decide on, on, on first line treatment, but also help with understanding what goes in the second and, uh, line and beyond. You know, as we said, tumor burden, tumor localization, age, toxicity, profile of the treatment. Uh, so, so, so localization meaning right versus left. Uh, uh, understanding uh, performance status, mostly related to tumor biology, not to necessarily to comorbidities. And of course, important to have RAS, BRAF, HER2, MSI status at the beginning. Because RAS mutated tumors, BRAF mutated tumors, HER2 amplified tumors, all these separately predict for lack of effectiveness of EGFR inhibitors. Microsatellite status helps us with 
deciding on immune therapy first. And on the quality of life, always important. And the most important aspect of what we do is preserving patient autonomy, letting the patient be part of the discussion and part of the decision-making process. So where do we have uh, data suggesting what's important to use in the third line and beyond? So we have two agents right now, regorafenib and TES-102, uh, that are indicated in the third line uh, following other chemotherapy regimens failures. And I say that, you know, it's very important for us, as, as I mentioned, you know, to have uh, HER2, BRAF, RAS, and uh, with the emerging G12C also uh, uh, targeting. So RAS mutations are targetable for 2% of the patients. Uh, and then, of course, uh, of course, MSI high. But if we account for all those between the RAF mutations, uh, the RAS G12C, the KRAS G12C, MSI high, and HER2 amplification, we have about 10-15% maybe of the patients who would fit this category. 85% of the patients we still haven't identified a target to go after. So 85% of those patients, once they fail Folfox, Folfira or Folfoxiri, they become eligible for uh, uh, Rigorafenib or, or TAS-102 uh, uh, since these are, are, are non, not specifically targeted. Rigorafenib is a multi-kinase inhibitor. TAS-102 is a, is a cytotoxic agent. It's a fluoropyrimidine uh, that tends to work, uh, uh, you know, to work well beyond 5-FU and capecitabine because of its mechanism of action, uh, but it's a cytotoxic agent and rigorafenib is a biologic, a multi-kinase inhibitor. So let's talk a little bit about the evidence that actually led to these agents uh, uh, becoming available uh, clinically to our patients. Uh, so I'm going to start first with rigorafenib. The correct trial was the first trial that essentially led to the approval of rigorafenib based on a study that randomized patients to rigorafenib or placebo, showing both overall survival, progression-free survival improvement uh, 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 over, uh, over, over placebo. And the hazard ratios tell a little bit more of the story. You know, they're interesting in, in, in when it comes to survival. But when it comes to progression-free survival, you can see that there is uh, definitely a, a, a nice separation after the median. It seems to just tell us that there are patients uh, 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 that go beyond the median that have, you know, uh, more meaningful uh, benefit from rigorafenib. And the 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 correct trial was uh, run in uh, mostly uh, Western countries and 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 some parts of Asia, and then Concur came in other parts of Asia, uh, China. Uh, and, and a couple of other Asian countries um, and essentially looked at the same question, but the uh, eligibility criteria, the entry criteria to the study were a little bit different. Uh, with the CONCUR uh, trial, uh, patients were allowed to, to essentially uh, 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 to enter the trial uh, with less or without the need to be exposed to biologics such as bevacizumab or cetuximab or penetumumab. The reason is lack of availability, and so this was a study that was adapted to this part of the world. So that's interesting because what that essentially tells us is, from the CONCUR trial at least, that patients who have been less pre-exposed uh, to other biologics such as bevacizumab uh, and, uh, and uh, uh, EGFR inhibitors their curves actually look more favorable historically than the correct study. 
So you can see that the deltas are more impressive and the hazard ratios are more impressive, historically at least, versus correct, although the overall adverse events were very similar, uh, and primarily hand and foot syndrome reaction and hepatotoxicity. So it's interesting to see that, uh, that, that you know, with a biologic agent like regorafenib, uh, uh, pulling it a little bit earlier, where indicated, of course, uh, uh, appears to, to provide uh, further benefit Historically, at least, again, I mean, you know, these are just historical comparisons versus, versus the correct trial. What do we know about TAS-102? Uh, so TAS-102, uh, you know, came to us from the recourse uh, trial. Uh, and this, again, was a trial that, that it was very similar uh, to, to correct in its, uh, uh, in its essentially eligibility criteria, although it did allow in about 17% of the patients on the recourse trial had prior regorafenib before enrolling on the study. And you can see the survival was, again, within range, uh, more favorable to TAS-102. PFS was also a little bit better, very similar to what we've seen with, uh, with uh, 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 regorafenib in the correct trial. The toxicities were a little bit different. We'll talk about those. They were primarily uh, 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 hematologic toxicities, although you could see that as patients move through one or two lines of therapy, uh, I'm sorry, one or two cycles of therapy with TAS-102, that you start seeing more fatigue and more GI toxicity. So you start seeing, you know, more of these toxicities uh, 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 after one or two cycles. And uh, when, when, when we look at uh, another study called the Terra study, it is interesting. The Terra study is very similar uh, uh, the, the concur study, and these essentially were studies uh, that uh, uh, were in countries that uh, specifically were not part of uh, of correct or recourse. And Terra uh, again was mostly China plus a couple of other Asian countries, and focused again on patients uh, with refractory colon cancer. Although again allowing uh, patients who were not exposed to bevacizumab or EGFR inhibitors, in fact, about 40% of them were not, to go on, on, on Terra. It is interesting that with Terra, unlike Concur, we didn't see these signals uh, of differential outcomes. The outcomes were, were very stable. In other words, with TAS-102, uh, in patients who were less pre-exposed to biologics, the outcomes were very similar to what was observed uh, in recourse. So TAS-102 seems to behave a little bit differently, at least historically, meaning that it seems to work relatively at the same level, regardless where you put it in the line of therapy versus regorafenib that seems to do better uh, uh, as, as, as you would place it uh, uh, as indicated, but in earlier, uh, earlier than the most refractory settings. So then the next question, uh, you know, that now we know is being answered by a large phase three study, but a phase two randomized study looking at the value of adding bevacizumab to TAS-102 versus TAS-102 in patients with metastatic colorectal cancer uh, following prior exposure to bevacizumab for most patients um, and, and, and also failing EGFR inhibitors. So prior bevacizumab here was optional. Uh, shown essentially uh, uh, a benefit to adding bevacizumab to TAS-102 versus TAS-102 alone. And you can see that with the PFS uh, uh, and, and, and at least a, 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 a numerical benefit with, uh, with OS. 
So this was somewhat of a positive study, uh, right? Uh, because of the at least the statistical uh, component to it, um, but it 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 was a phase two randomized study, a relatively small study, uh, and provides a very interesting signal. Uh, but it certainly does not change our standard of care. At least it didn't change our uh, clinic uh, standard of care here. I I uh, I did. Tr- you know, engage into into some of our patients receiving TAS-102 plus BEV instead of TAS-102. Personally, I haven't seen much of a difference versus TAS-102, at least that's my clinical experience. Um, so I went back to just TAS-102, and thankfully we had a study called Sunlight, the phase three study that was looking at TAS-102 plus BEV versus TAS-102 that we enrolled preferentially patients on. Um, and that study completed, and we hope to see some results in the phase three. So if that becomes a standard, that's fantastic. That's an added value uh, uh, to our patients, uh, again, pending the results of the phase three study. We'll see where, where we're at, hopefully by the, before the end of the year. So how can healthcare professionals best integrate tyrosine kinase inhibitors into team-based care for third-line management colorectal cancer? We all work in very complex environments. And essentially, you know, we have nurses, we have pharmacists, we have nurse practitioners or advanced uh, practitioners, uh, and we all work together, uh, you know, uh, not just in, in, in refractory settings, but at any setting to optimize the care of these patients by ensuring they get the right regimen, their toxicities are cared for, uh, those adjustments are, are, are made correctly, adequate education is there. So I'm going to take the case of a patient who's 62-year-old, a 62-year-old man who presents with metastatic colorectal cancer. At initial presentation, the performance status was 1. Unfortunately, the patient had a KRAS mutation. It wasn't a G12C, unfortunately, otherwise he would have qualified for one of our trials. Uh, it was a, 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 a G12V, like victory. Uh, the patient went on first line, uh, Folfox plus bevacizumab. Uh, and then uh, after uh, eight months of therapy, so went for Volfox Bev for five months and then came Cytabine Bev and then progressed. Uh, uh, and then second line, uh, the patient received Fulfiri uh, plus Bevacizumab. So we continued the Bevacizumab and then switched to Fulfiri. Um, again, four months of therapy. Uh, and then at the scan at the time of uh, of uh, of. Uh, uh, at the four-month uh, mark, the patient showed evidence of progression, uh, and then ultimately we went to third line. So this was a patient who uh, was microsatellite stable, KRS G12V mutation, or the tumor was had KRS uh, 12V mutation, and so we decided at that point of time uh, that it's time to move on to to third line. It was uh, an option between a tyrosine kinase inhibitor, a multi-kinase inhibitor such as regorafenib, or TES-102. We actually proceeded, as is our standard in our clinic, to regorafenib given the favorable performance status of one, uh, good organ function, uh, and, and the patient essentially was started on <clears throat> what we call a dose-optimized optimized strategy. We'll talk about this a little bit from the study we published uh, recently. Uh, and and the, which means you know we started at 80 milligram, uh, went to 120 milligram the next week, and then uh, 160 milligrams the week after. The way we work in our clinic 
essentially is once uh, the physician, the provider, has a discussion with the patient, uh, then uh, we recommended regorafenib, the patient, uh, you know, wanted to proceed, then my pharmacist actually has a discussion with the patient and goes through the regimen uh, about where we start with the 80 and then how we proceed to the 120, then to the 160, uh, based on touch points. So my pharmacist and my nurse actually touch point with the patient every week to decide on the next dose level. Uh, so we integrate that and then at four weeks the patient comes back and essentially has uh, a visit with the, with the APP and then at eight weeks with myself, uh, essentially with repeat scans uh, and, 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 and throughout, of course, you know, blood tests. So uh, the, the dosing strategy is, is important, uh, but what's more important is how we communicate with the patient and how we involve essentially all the team. So the pharmacist, the nurses, uh, you know, I certainly spent time talking about toxicities, but at the level of counseling and, and follow through, the pharmacists and the nurses actually take, take more of the lead. So as, as you recall, many of us have, when we started using regorafenib, we started using it based on um, the dosing that was originally based on the correct trial. Uh, 160 milligrams orally daily on days 1 to 22 and that certainly was pretty challenging for uh, most patients and, and providers you know have had reluctance including myself uh, to start with that 160 uh, and, and there was significant toxicity especially at day 15 I mean they start very early hand foot uh, skin reaction and then uh, some fatigue and occasional diarrhea and they, they really happen at their worst in the first two to three weeks of treatment and so that led a lot of folks to, you know, go on the, on the dose to 80 to 120, start at 80 or start at 120 or just stick to the 120 or go down. So there was no real good guidance about how to best do this. So because of that, we decided to go with, the, uh, with the, what we call the REDO study, which is Rigorafenib Dose Escalation Strategy. Uh, and essentially, uh, uh, it was uh, the strategy that we used for, for our patient when we go with 80 milligrams every day for week one and then touch point with the patient either physically well, on the study it was physical but now we do it either physically or by telehealth by the the pharmacist or the nurse uh, touching point here uh, go to 120 on week two and then 160 on week three if tolerated and the, the primary point of the study was percentage of patients who actually complete two cycles and then start cycle three so it's important to understand how we came up with that primary endpoint. For, you to, for the patient to be able to get to cycle three, they had to tolerate the treatment, but also the treatment had to work. So you capture both efficacy and uh, tolerability, and then we, of course, captured survival and PFS. There was a second randomization on the study, actually uh, uh, another randomization, which looked at what we call preemptive clobetasol, which is a steroid cream, versus reactive clobetasol, uh, meaning that we either give the patients, uh, they get randomized to uh, start applying the steroid cream uh, uh, for 12 weeks, uh, twice a day, uh, uh, before starting regorafenib or uh, reactively even once, once they have the hands and foot syndrome reaction. Anyways, what the study showed, it, it reached primary endpoint. Essentially, it did show that 43% uh, uh, of the patients who went on the escalating dose strategy actually uh, were able to proceed 
to cycle three versus only uh, uh, 26% on the standard dose. And when we will look at what percent of patients actually ended up with progressive disease, 37% on uh, the dose escalation strategy versus 47% on the standard dose. The other patients that may not have continued through the treatment was primarily because of toxicities. So you can see that less patients were progressing, more patients were tolerating the, the, the dose on the escalating dose strategy. To our surprise, when we published this paper, uh, the survival on the dose escalation strategy was actually better 9.8 months versus only 6 months, which is pretty what we expect for the standard dose group on uh, the standard dose group. So when we look at rigorafenib dose optimization strategy, when we look at the toxicities, they were certainly improved with the dose escalation strategy versus the standard dose. The quality of life was also improved significantly uh, uh, in, in, in the dose escalation strategy versus the standard dose. In fact, it was maintained with the, dose, with the standard dose, the 160, there was a dip. It's very important to understand that regardless of whether you use the dose optimization strategy or not, it is very important um, to understand that with, 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 with occurrence of, of toxicities, it is important to understand how we manage those toxicities. Uh, education is important for, for hand and foot syndrome reaction, which is one of the, uh, the toxicities that is, is, ends up being quite limiting. Uh, make sure you, know, you look at the hands, the feet of the patients, you know, uh, 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 you know, clean up the skin and then avoid significant friction or stress. And then the way we manage it, of course, you know, we have a number of elements from, you know, uh, lotions, uh, creams, steroid creams. Uh, in severe cases, we may actually end up having to use oral uh, steroids. With hypertension, you know, just very routine VEGF-linked uh, hypertension and other toxicities as well. So we go back to uh, our patient, essentially who received regorafenib in the third line, and we started at 80 milligrams on week one, went up to 120 uh, on, on week two. The patient was able to tolerate just minimal hand and foot syndrome reaction, which was very manageable. Uh, and, and, and then uh, the patient uh, you know, ended up uh, with 160 uh, uh, milligram and continued through cycle, cycle three. Now, you know, I think it's important for us to understand what if this patient, and, and we know that half of our patients end up in this predicament of having uh, 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 dose-related uh, uh, toxicities, uh, even at the lower dose. In fact, when you look at redose, about 40% of the patients were able to achieve 160 milligrams. So it's important to understand that the goal remains 160 milligram, But the other 60% 60, 60 of the patients continue to cycle three either at 120 or 80. And so if our patient here had any uh, uh, related toxicities, hand and foot syndrome reaction, let's say, at, uh, uh, at week two when we get to 120, and that the, that toxicity ends up essentially being, let's say, grade two, then we have to stop the treatment, uh, initiate essentially supportive care measures, and, 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 and you have those essentially uh, to download, um, you know, applying uh, essentially steroid. In this patient, we would apply steroid uh, uh, cream uh, or lotion, and that would help uh, typically uh, with 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 the symptoms. And then, you know, likely skip week three, and then restart the patient for cycle two at 120, 
if uh, the toxicities resolve, which usually they do for most patients. So how else can we mitigate hand and foot syndrome reaction? As I said, you know, part of our REDOS trial included uh, the question of preemptive clobetasol. Uh, and what we found, this was published in The Oncologist and is available to you as well to download, is uh, if we use preemptive clobetasol, and I frankly would say any, any steroid cream, that appears to actually lessen uh, the, uh, uh, the risk as well as the severity of hand and foot syndrome reaction. So in my clinic right now, uh, I've uh, actually gone to use more and more, almost universally for our patients, uh, a preemptive uh, steroid cream, preferably clobetasol. Tend to be expensive, so you can use the other steroid creams if the, if the insurance doesn't cover it or the patient can't afford it. So uh, I, I, think, I think that, that second uh, random, uh, that, 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 that second part of our Redo study actually established that. So in addition to the dose um, escalation strategy, preemptive steroids appear to make sense. So going back to, to our patient, uh, uh, so Mark now, a uh, 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 62-year-old man presenting with metastatic colorectal cancer, good performance status, mutation in KRS, not G12C, so wouldn't qualify for our clinical trial. Receives Swalfoxbev in the first line, progresses, and then second line, Fulfiribev, then progresses, and in third line, uh, uh, in this patient, performance status was about two. We decided to proceed with TES uh, 102. Again, I meet with the patient. We discuss the, the various options. We proceed. We decide to proceed with TES 102. At that point, uh, again, the patient will touch point with my pharmacist who goes through because the regimen can be a little bit confusing. It's five days on, two days off, two weeks on, two weeks off. Um, you know, many of our older patients can have a hard time uh, with, uh, with, with following these instructions. So we ensure that the nurses, the, the uh, pharmacists are involved at that point of time. Very important in, in before cycle two to check a CBC on these patients to ensure there's about three to four percent who may have febrile neutropenia. So it's very important to have that discussion with the patients about the implication because they can end up hospitalized and if not taken care of, you know, the patients actually can, uh, can, uh, can crash and die uh, if, if not cared for at that, at that point. So I think it's very important uh, to have the appropriate uh, education about, uh, you know, how to take the drug and also about the toxicities and follow through. You know, some patients are unable to go fully through the, the, the regimen uh, with good tolerance and there is some data that suggests now that for some patients you could go for every other week rather than two weeks on and two weeks off. And we have favored this a little bit more in our clinic as I think it makes it a little bit easier overall, uh, especially for older patients. Uh, and as I said, you know, neutropenia, leukopenia um, can be the, the, the toxicities you see at their worst, but you also see some GI toxicities and fatigue accumulating after cycle two, and they can become quite limiting. I've seen some significant fatigue in many patients, uh, especially those that actually go through more than two cycles of treatment. And, you know, these are some of the, uh, the, the, the adverse uh, event management, uh, you know, with, uh, with TAS-102, and especially as you add bevacizumab, now we go back into, you know, understanding uh, 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 how to best manage uh, 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 hypertension uh, as per our standards. 
So what are the take-home messages uh, for uh, later lines of therapy? I think as we move uh, uh, more and more to fulfirinox, uh, this discussion actually will happen earlier with many patients. Uh, many of my patients now uh, are ha we're having the discussion about regorafenib or TES-102 in the, in the second line rather than the third line. As I said, effective therapy is available for later line management of metastatic colorectal cancer, and we have agents like regorafenib and TES-102 that are active. Again, as a, re as a reminder, 15 to 15 to 20% of the patients will have a target we can go after, but for the other 80%, unfortunately, uh, we, 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 when, when they get to their second or third line, depending on what the first line is, uh, 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 plus minus the second line, uh, then TAS-102 and regorafenib are uh, at least the only therapeutic options available to our patients. Important to have that discussion about choice, tolerability, and the quality of life is very important. So when we use regorafenib, I certainly would hope that everyone is using the dose optimization strategy. It does achieve better outcomes, but most important, it preserves quality of life and improves significantly uh, the toxicity profile and personalizes in some ways the dose by using that escalation strategy from 80 to 120 to 160. With TAS-102, again, watch out mostly for uh, the early toxicities with leukopenia and neutropenia and the later toxicities with fatigue and GI toxicities. And oftentimes, as an alternative, you know, push the every other week. I think I cannot but overemphasize the importance of a team, a team approach, you know, bringing the nurse, bringing the pharmacist, uh, uh, bringing the advanced providers, nurse practitioners, PAs into the discussion early and actually working with the team to make sure that we have the right dose, that we're treating our patients adequately, educating them adequately and finding the best dose possible for the patient so their quality of life is not compromised but their outcomes continue to improve. So as a conclusion, uh, this concludes our exploration of team-based management of metastatic colorectal cancer in later lines of therapy. I hope you found this activity informative and useful for your practice. Thank you. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Bayer Healthcare Pharmaceuticals Incorporated. This activity is certified by PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash GVA 860.